0: Today's guest is Christian Bush. He's an internationally known expert in the areas of innovation, purpose-driven leadership, and entrepreneurship. He teaches at NYU and the London School of Economics, and is the author of the new book, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. I finished the book just recently. It's where we're gonna focus most of our conversation, but I'm really, really excited to have Christian on the show. So welcome to The
1: Deep Dive. Thanks so much for having me,
0: Phil. I finished the book, like I said, and it's a really interesting conversation just generally because serendipity, luck, we use these terms interchangeably. Some people are proponents of the idea of luck or serendipity. Others are what I would consider skeptics. They don't believe in necessarily the idea that their their success is connected to, you know, unknown forces, so-called unknown forces. So I want to give you the opportunity to really set up why you approached writing about serendipity and your particular take on how you're defining the serendipity mindset.
1: Yeah, that's a great question because one of the things I found fascinating over the last years as community builder, company builder, and then researcher was that somehow the most successful, joyful, purpose-driven people around me, they seem to intuitively cultivate serendipity. They seem to intuitively do things that made them a little bit luckier than others or that made them be a bit more innovative than others and or have a bit more, quote-unquote, luck than others. And so uh, I got really excited about the question, what is it behind that? And one of the things that, that I've discovered was, hey, look, we, a lot of times, Think about luck in the sense of blind luck, right? The kind of luck that just happens to us, like, you know, inheriting something, even though that can turn out pretty badly as well. But I guess a lot of times that might be blind luck or, you know, being born into a good family. These kind of things, they're all about essentially something that we can't really control. It just happens to us. But then essentially serendipity is all about this idea of smart luck, of active luck, of something where we say, okay, you know, there is something unexpected happening. Let's say, take the example of, I'll tell you in a second, but there's something unexpected happening and then we have to do something with it. We have to connect dots. We have to be active about it. So one of the most well-known examples in history is, you know, when a couple of researchers a couple of decades ago were giving people medication and they saw some kind of movement happening in male participants' trousers and, you know, they were like, oh, this is unexpected, right? And what would we usually do? We would say, oh my God, this is embarrassing. So we would either ignore it or we would say, let's find a quote-unquote better cure for angina, what they tried in that case, in order to cure that. They did the opposite. They said, well, look, this is unexpected that while we're trying to cure angina, there's some kind of movement happening in male participants' trousers. But you know what? A lot of male male people in the world might have a problem in that department. So why don't we essentially come up with a medication that uses this and so this is how viagra was born right it was completely unexpected but people had to do something about it and that's the same you know imagine this kind of scenario you're in a coffee shop and you spill coffee over the kind of person next to you and you sense there might be some kind of connection and now you have two options like you can use these unexpected moments and forge a conversation or you what happened a lot to me in my life right i would be too shy or something i would just say oh i'm so sorry and then move on and you go outside and you're like oh if I would have talked with this person, maybe that person could have become a life partner or whatever it is. And so essentially serendipity is really about this kind of idea that, yes, there is something unexpected happening, but we have to do something with it. And if we don't, then then it's serendipity missed.
0: And you touched on quite a few things in that statement that, you know, there are actually going to be multiple questions wrapped up in one one statement or, or one question, so forgive me for that. But you know, you mentioned this idea of, of like zip codes, for example, meaning where you were born, who you were born to, who your family is. These are things that no one can control, right? And, and there was a, a recent study, at least based here in the United States. So I'm gonna, this is an example that might not be as applicable in other parts of the country. I know we have in other parts of the world, rather we have listeners globally, but I'm gonna use this from an American perspective. Where, you know, people will say, you know, your zip code, where you are born is a huge determinant factor, maybe over any other factor as to what type of success you're going to have in your life. But yet there's an intention in what you've described that seems to work, not in opposition to that idea, but can be maybe a supporting element to that idea. Like, What do you think about that concept?
1: Yeah that's such an interesting observation because that comes to the one of the root questions which is around that the serendipity base level, the starting position for us is, of course, extremely different, right? So if I'm kind of here in the West Village in New York and I have amazing networks, I, I had a pretty good like, education and other things, so I'm set up for a lot of serendipity by the kind of interactions I have and and by the way I grew up and everything else, versus if you have a kid somewhere in the Cape Flats in Cape Town who grew up under extreme kind of resource-constrained conditions, doesn't have a lot of networks, and so on. Like In a way, I can already say now that I will most probably no matter how I develop my mindset or how this person develops their mindset, we'll probably have more serendipity happen also. So we we have very different starting positions. And then though, so it has to go hand in hand, kind of in a way, removing societal constraints or structural constraints with kind of that like more mindset type change. And then at the same time, like, what really gets me excited about this mindset level is that a lot of my work is in, in extreme resource constrained environments. So, particularly in parts of Kenya and in the Cape Flats and Cape Town. And, and so, these are people who have essentially, they grow up in extremely, under extremely tough conditions, high crime rates no real education happening and and all these kind of things. And yet, like when you look at some of them, they reframed the situation. And so, for example, there's a fascinating organization called Reconstructed Living Labs, which is essentially former drug addicts, former people who, who had a really tough time, who developed a very simple education methodology And so what they do is essentially say, hey, here are 10 steps of how to build a business or 10 steps of how to use social media. And now what they do is they go into different communities and they ask essentially, hey, what is already here? Oh, there's a former drug dealer. Fantastic. This person has amazing social capital. They are well-connected locally and they're usually extremely resourceful. So if this person can see themselves become a teacher. So if this person now starts essentially telling their story, telling about their learnings about their journey and how they now kind of teach people how to build XYZ because they have a small corner store or something like that, essentially now what's happening is people start reframing the situation away from resource constraint to this kind of potentiality of saying, oh, there's an old garage fantastic. That's a potential training center. There's a former drug addict, fantastic. Or former drug addict, fantastic. This is a potential teacher. And so I'm really fascinated by these kind of things that, again, it has to go hand in hand with removing structural constraints, but at the same time, then also this kind of mindset shift around, how do we essentially become part of creating our own luck? Because That is the most safe way in those contexts to create dignity, right? Because you don't feel you're dependent on outside people. I will never forget, for example, the first time I got into working there around, I think, seven or eight years ago, I would go into the community and I would say, what should I never ask you? I, as the kind of person who comes in here and who thinks they have a lot of things figured out. And the answer by, who's now a very good friend of mine, Marlon, would be, never ask me what I need first. Because if you ask me what I need, you put me into the role of the victim, of someone who who is the beneficiary of your kind of activity. Ask me what we can do together. Ask me what's here that we can create. And by doing this, we have like a symmetrical relationship between the two of us where both of us can do something and have some kind of agency. And to me, that was really the big change in terms of saying, you know what? It's not about creating the luck just for others. It's about enabling others also to create their own luck. And that's one of the core things why I'm so excited about Serendipity, because it becomes this beautiful kind of hope-building pragmatic approach to to really creating something.
0: Throughout the book, and I love the example that you gave, but there were quite a few others that dealt with this idea of resource constraint. And one of my prevailing thoughts, and it's, it's not that it just came from me, but this idea of how culture largely comes from the margin. And what I mean by that is that those who are constrained by whatever it could be, it could be material conditions, it could be societal conditions, some combination of both, often have to ask the hard questions, right? They're the ones who have to hack things, remix things, make the prevailing norms and rules work for them while also sometimes working around those things. So it sounds to me, and as I was going through the book, that serendipity can very much fit into this culture-based conversation of understanding the rules, but yet sometimes having to manage and work around them in some respects.
1: Mm. That's such an interesting observation because it's, it's it comes also, I guess, to the question of, you know, po- positive deviance. So like essentially, what can we learn from people at the kind of periphery, right? In terms of, to your point, like if there is someone in a certain context that uses X Y Z differently, but that seems to be more effective, how are we open and ready to accept that and to take that in? And that's actually what I find fascinating about what's happening at the moment, right? If you look at COVID as like a collective near-death experience, almost right. I mean, I just had it, and to me it was very intense. But I think also to others here in New York and in general in kind of epicenters, it's been very intense because it's almost like necessity-based. Now we have to ask the tough questions, right? To your point, like it's almost like there's no way of not asking tough questions when you are in a situation where you have to hold yourself up at home you have to learn from people who have done that for some time you have to you redefine your relationships you redefine a lot of things you took for granted and i think that is actually something to your point that serendipity allows us to 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 question assumptions or to do that because the unexpected in a way it always, by definition, comes unexpectedly, but then it shapes a lot of our life, right? I mean, this was the most obvious one now, but also in general. And so one of the things that I've observed in a lot of different contexts, let's say, for example, bigger companies also, is that the most successful people would essentially have a sense of direction and then a certain idea of where they're going. But then this openness to the unexpected because it allows them to then kind of do something. So take someone like, like Governor Cuomo, right? here in New York at the moment, I found it fascinating how differently he approached it than most of the other governors. Because what he said was, hey, look, I have two principles here that are guiding me, which is economic and public health. And I will give you an approximate timeline, but you know what? as soon as unexpected information comes in, as soon as something, we will revise the plan. And I will not commit to the plan. I will commit I will commit to the North Star, to the kind of where we want to go. And I will be open to the unexpected, which is very different from others who would say, yes, we will open up again exactly on March 15th. And this is exactly, and that's where people then get into, oh, we have to fake data because we have to stay credible because we committed to a particular thing and X, Y, Z. And so I think that the beautiful thing is when we think about serendipity, that it, or the unexpected, it brings out the best and the worst in people, right? And, and it brings out the best and the worst in terms of how people actually either see it as something they can shape positively or they can actually then, you know, they have to, to see it as a big risk, something that undermines them. And so I think to your point earlier, building a culture around this, if you think about it in terms of also corporate culture, that essentially sees the unexpected as something that should be integrated in our planning because it will be happening anyways, versus something that tries to just like see it as a risk and then tries to eliminate it. It's very different types of approaches, mindsets, and it develops different types of culture around that in, in that sense.
0: And it's interesting that you mentioned not just the COVID piece, which is definitely significant. Like you said, New York City has been one of the global epicenters, and I'm, I'm glad you're feeling better and and more on the mend. And, and it makes me think about the linear nature in which we do planning, right? That we think to ourselves by certain dates, and you can use COVID dates, or we can use the larger identity or, or metaphor around our individual lives, that, you know, I'm going to Graduate from school at this time. I'm going to take these classes, and I'm going to get a job. And I'm going, to, you know, our lives can tend to follow a path that seems linear, but yet once you start to really think about moments of serendipity, it doesn't seem like linearity is something that really exists at all, right? We're kind of living in multiple places from a time perspective, all at the same time. Like, how do you break? folks out of this linear thought when serendipity doesn't seem to support it?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, especially because it comes to deep-seated biases, right, in terms of how we constantly underestimate the unexpected, how probable actually the improbable is, right? It's very improbable that our connection breaks down. It's very improbable that I don't know, the wall falls on my head here. It's very improbable that XYZ, but still there will always be some kind of small hiccup or something, right? Because it's it's actually quite probable that something small happens somewhere. And that's the same in our lives, right? Like, but if you think back on your life, you know, we, we always try to map things out to your point. But then the most interesting things, right? How we meet our life partner, how we meet a co-founder, how we innovated something, like they usually come unexpectedly. And and one of my favorite visuals is this idea of you know the to your point of linearity like the straight line of how we try to map things out right step by step by step and then the unexpected happens so it looks more like a squibble but actually then we still tell it as if it was step by step so like if i would now come to you as a new you know if you would be the person i want to work for i would come with my cv and i would say hey phil you know what like I worked at LSE and then I always wanted to go to New York. So I went to NYU. And then, you know, I always wanted to do XYZ. So I will tell you a narrative that goes step by step. But actually, no, not really. I ran into someone in the restroom who told me about XYZ opportunity. And then like I was like, great, I'll do this. And so a lot of these things actually happen unexpectedly, but then we make the narrative as if it was step by step. And one of the the hopes I actually have with this book also is that it gives us a, a more honest language almost in terms of how reality really unfolds, because especially in leadership contexts, like We did a huge study, for example, with CEOs of big companies that try to integrate profit and purpose. And one of the themes that came out of this was to say, they are very aware of the role of the unexpected, but towards their board and towards others they're accountable to, they always need to show a little bit more of linearity because it portrays this kind of control thing where people would say, oh yeah, they have everything under control. Whereas they know, no, like I don't always have everything under control. I'm winging a lot of these things. And so by essentially framing serendipity away from, oh my God, it's something passive that that person wasn't able to manage something to saying, no, 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 it's an active approach to leading during uncertainty. Once you're doing this, you actually enable people to say, you know what? I created a culture that allows for this to happen. If I'm a MasterCard and my North Star or my big goal is to get 500 million people into the financial system... At the beginning, I don't 100% know how to exactly do it, but I put this out there. And then I have people who run into other people and who unexpectedly come up with a solution. And that's essentially the sign of a great culture then to integrate that solution rather than our initial kind of plan. And so I think it's really giving people that active language around the unexpected and saying, it's not a loss of control when you cultivate serendipity, quite the opposite. It's actually a much more sincere approach towards managing uncertainty, because you can pretend that you have it all figured out, but then you constantly have to hide away and you constantly have to pretend that there's something that didn't happen happened. So it's it's really about that kind of active language as well.
0: When I was listening to your response to that question, I was smiling to myself and, and kind of thinking about, it feels sometimes like we're kind of whipped between these different realities, because you mentioned this idea of control which comes like they're very masculine values that that are associated with this idea of controlling things and having answers and being more dominant. and then feminine values that correspond to more inquiry, you know, more thinking things out, empathy, compassion, those kind of things that lead you in a particular way. And the reason why I'm kind of centered on that is because, And again, we're going to kind of use COVID as an example, though I think this can be applicable in many other ways, in that organizations want to represent control. They want to have definitive landmarks and answers. And when you look at how this crisis has been handled, you see a pushback against experts, right? And when experts get that new information, which is slightly different from serendipity because they're still going through a discovery process. That's actually used to invalidate their expertise where people will say, well, oh, at the beginning, you told us masks weren't important. So why would I believe you now kind of thing? So I'm curious about how we manage what seems to be conflicting ideas around control. And maybe it's not specific to serendipity, but you did spark that in your great response around how corporates manage these expectations relative to the North star.
1: Yeah. It's such an interesting question. Also, so a couple of days ago I had this wonderful conversation with a friend of mine around masculine and feminine energies and how, you know, when, when all of us have both masculine and feminine energy and, you know, as a man, when we grow up, we suppress a lot of the feminine. As a woman, especially in the career, you suppress a lot of the feminine. And so it's kind of this fascinating thing of like, we all somehow suppressing something, right? And we're, we're constantly kind of, we build companies in ways that suppress a lot of, especially, unfortunately, the, the feminine and the intuitive and the, and again, like this is not female, male, right? It's, it's really just like the quality. Yeah, of a value based but, Exactly. Yeah. And so what I found fascinating to your point, right? I mean, A, Um, those leaders who seem to do best at the moment seem to have more kind of intuitive feminine qualities in the sense of like really navigating what it means to navigate uncertainty. We see that in terms of which countries are succeeding. We see that in terms of which companies are succeeding. And so it's fascinating also to to me to observe exactly this, that in a way, I think they've been really good. Those that seem to succeed, they've been really good at articulating also that this is not about going with like X, Y, Z emotion or whatever it is. No, this is just like, it's the most reasonable approach to do it. It's the most reasonable approach in a situation where you don't have information to sense your way through it and to have some kind of idea of where you're going. And so to our earlier conversational point, I think that's where it gets really interesting where in a way, you know, when you think about experts and others. I think those that are losing at the moment are the ones who are saying, we know everything, we have it all figured out and say that at the beginning, because that places you in an untenable position, right? If you're a Fauci and you say in January, I know exactly how this unfolds, this would never work, right? Because you can't know. This is a new kind of disease. You can have patterns from old diseases, but like you can't exactly know how it plays out. But if you stand there and you say, look, uh, we have an approximate idea of how these things unfold, but we will have to adjust based on what information comes in, you have a completely different type of credibility. And so that comes really back to to the, the example we we talked about earlier. That when you think about real credible leaders that really build trust, a lot of times they would really kind of they would go out there and they say, "I have an approximate idea of where we're going, but you know what? I need you, everyone in the room, to bring me information or to bring all of us information that, in a way, tells us how to exactly go about it. Because in a way, I can tell you the why a little bit and, and help with this, and I can give us a certain sense of where we're going, but actually." We, we need to reevaluate this. And to your point, I think that in a way is almost like a mature gut feeling because it, or a mature intuition because it's not just an intuitive, erratic leader, but it's essentially someone who says, I know approximately where we're going. We want to cure this, for example, but actually we have to revise this. And so very long story short, I think, One of the things that gets instilled in us in the education system, in schools, and in universities is this idea that you have to have control, to your point. like You have to have a plan. You have to map that plan out. And to your point, it's a very uni kind of approach towards time, right? Step by step by step. But actually what happens is that the most intelligent people, of course, update that based on new information coming in. And I've always been such a big fan of To give an example, I do a lot of supervision of thesis of of like people writing their dissertations. And so there's this kind of beautiful thing when they come inside the room and I usually kind of, you know, of course I want to read patterns, but also I try to be completely non-judgmental, but I might have some biases that that I do have in that. And I try to, of course, not, not take that into the grading. But what happens is someone will come into a room and say, hey, look, so you have broadly two different types of people. Like the one type of person comes in and says... Hey, look, I know exactly what I write, want to write about. This is the one literature I want to like use. Can you give me the stamp of approval? I'm like, great. Like, run with it. These people usually end up pretty okay. you know. It's kind of the person who knows exactly what they want. They go with it and that's it. The other type of person comes in and it's like, oh my God, you know what? I read into this literature and this literature and then I read into this and then I try to figure out this. But, you know, and so there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of kind of creative tension. But that creative tension actually leads them to real originality in the end. And so it's that kind of friction that, that allows for it. And again, it seems ambiguous for some time, but actually then it kind of propels that to really interesting things. And so unfortunately, also the flip side of this is there's the other type that like ends up in like the tougher past type territory in terms of, I'm not getting there, but long story short, like it's really in a way, the most creative people also allow for a little bit if they want to or not ambiguity that that allows them then to, to do that. And that's actually what I think is the healthiest way in terms of really unfolding potential.
0: And the linear point, the control point, it brings me to uh, one of my notes here where this idea of connecting the dots, because in my work as, as a strategist, I tell organizations that I work with that I actually don't connect dots, that what I do is I'm more in invisible dots, like connecting dots. I always use this example, of, you know, when we were young and it was either numbered or lettered or whatever, and you would make the drawing and you just kind of had to follow like dot number 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 and so on and then you would have like a turtle or a rabbit or whatever the you know whatever the thing was when you were a kid and what i found in my work over the past decade or so it's that i'm often connecting dots that aren't seen they're invisible in a sense that you know one piece of information here could appear to be almost 100% unrelated to another piece of information here, but yet there are some overlaps. So as someone who has traveled around the world, you've, you've worked on several different projects with, with all types of different people, much of what's detailed in the book, you know, how do you build confidence in this mindset when so much of what we're dealing with is actually invisible? It's unseen. It's those things that there isn't a metric to describe the value of that time you spilled that coffee on that person, right? But it's incredibly meaningful, you know, depending on on where you take it. So I wonder how you you wrestle with that idea of the unseen or unknown.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating because it's almost also something that is unseen to to you might be seen to me, or it might be, you know, someone else might see a dot where you don't see one and, and someone else might based on their experience or their you know life kind of setting. And and so to make that more concrete, I'm a big fan of, of rituals such as project funerals, for example, where essentially the idea is that something doesn't work out and then you talk about why you think it didn't work out and you essentially take the learnings from that. And what happens a lot of times is that people then in those moments see unexpected things where that could be of value in a completely different area. So to give you an example, there was this this one company that had this kind of window frame, you know, like glass, where essentially the idea was, okay, it wouldn't reflect the lights. And so amazing technology, but they underestimated that people wouldn't really pay a lot of money for that. And so what they would do is they would lay it to rest in front of people from other divisions. They would say, hey, look, this was a nice technology, but we learned that next time we should think a bit more about the market. Now, again, in most companies, we would just like try to hide away, like try to just kind of like forget about these things and essentially kill all the potential dots that could be there. They do the opposite. They put it out there. And then essentially someone in the audience would be like, hey, hey, have you considered what this would mean for solar? Have you considered how amazing this technology could be in an apparatus around like solar panels and, and X, Y, Z? And that is how part of their solar division emerged, right? It was completely coincidental. It was completely serendipitous. But what they did was here, they imbued meaning in that potential dot there, that they imbued meaning in that potential thing that didn't work in one context because actually it might work in another one. And so I think that's, to me, like one of these examples where, yes, that dot wasn't there anymore in our area because it didn't have meaning anymore in the area we're in. But for someone else in another context, an idea or something might still have a lot of meaning. And if we kind of enable people to potentially see those dots, but also then connect them, that's where it gets really exciting. And so I think it's something actually, I was just another thought I just had, take another example of Oli Barrett, who's a wonderful entrepreneur in in London. And so what he, he does is he has a hook strategy. So essentially his idea is, I have no idea what's going on in your head, right? I, know, I don't know, Phil, if we talk about something now, I don't know what will be relevant to you. So I don't know which dots. I can read up a little bit on you, but you might have something completely different already on your mind. So it's hard for me to know exactly which dots we could connect with each other, right? But actually now what Ollie would do, if you would ask him, so what do you do? He would say, well, I'm an education entrepreneur, but I recently started reading into philosophy. But what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so, what he does here is he gives you three potential hooks where you could be like, Oh my god, such a coincidence, I just started a philosophy club, you should join in. Or, such a coincidence, I just started hosting matinees, come and play the piano. The point here is, again, by giving you a couple of potential dots where he doesn't even know if there's any value in these dots for you, but by just giving you a couple of those, you can imbue meaning in those based on your own kind of excitement, motivation, and passion. And so, that to me becomes the really interesting thing when we talk about dots, that dots a lot of times become meaningful in relation to someone or something. And a lot of times that happens when I give that to you. If I don't try to connect all the dots, but to your point, I'm sure in your work, you're probably seeding a lot of potential dots for people where they can be like, oh my God, there's a connection. And so I guess that's also where a lot of value of people like us comes in, right? In terms of saying, let's seed some things where other people can then find meaning in those and and connect dots. People
0: can't see me, but I'm like nodding as you're talking, because there's there's so many things that I'm just really vibing off of, and I think one of them is when you talk in the book, and and I knew this before because I I think we actually first connected years ago on Facebook because of Sandbox, the Sandbox Network. Because I know Fabian and Neve and tons of other folks um, scattered throughout the world that are were sandboxers in the Sandbox Network. So what was always interesting to me is that it's a community put together and designed with the intentionality to kind of encourage serendipity, right? And I want you to share a little bit of that story, not just because you mentioned it in the book, but because I think it is very instructive to listeners as to how you can start to think about ecosystems to encourage the type of mindset that you describe in the book and also what you just extrapolated through making connections, identifying these dots that could be meaningful depending on context and the person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that was absolutely yeah, delightful. Um, I think Fabian put us in touch and he's, I mean, yeah. those of you who are interested in kind of community building, he has a wonderful thing called the community canvas. And I, I highly recommend, you know, as a kind of thinking about how to, what are the questions to go through for community building? But so essentially, so so Sandbox um, has been all about this question of, you know, usually when you have people who are, extremely inspiring in their own fields. So you have entrepreneurs, designers, business people, they're usually connected in their own fields, but mindset wise, they're much closer to people in other fields. And so the question was, how do we develop a home for people who might be seen slightly crazy by people in their own field, but actually they seem crazy because they're pushing boundaries. And so essentially it was all about saying, how do we bring them together in a community? That community is now globally organized in the hub structure. So you have local events where people locally identify interesting people, and then there's local events, global events. And online interactions and so on. And and one of the things I found really fascinating is that at the beginning of it, you know, we would like create this kind of group of people who would, the idea was, you know, the questions, for example, would ask when people would be at dinners, they wouldn't be about like, what's your professional affiliation or something, but it would be more about like, what's on your mind? What's your challenges? What are your transitions you're going through? And really kind of building common denominators based on areas that people are really kind of deeply, maybe guarded about sometimes, but actually that could be a way for them to do that. And so one thing that happened was that's like, you know, whatever dinner you would go to, people would be like, oh my God, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence. In almost every conversation people would have, they would always find unexpected overlaps. And so it was really kind of, you know, at hindsight, we would now probably say, hey, look, okay, there was like, a certain common denominator in terms of similar values and and things that people had in common and at the same time that kind of diversity that allowed them then to connect dots differently. So there was definitely a certain recipe around that. But I think extrapolating from that, what I found really fascinating is, is really exactly that question. How do we, when we meet a person for the first time, especially, how do we understand what the commonality is without being too intrusive? How do we understand what could be potential dots without having to talk for 10 hours about a whole life history and figuring it out? And that's really something where I feel it's really small things a lot of times, right? Like the way we ask questions. Do we ask something like, what do you do? Or do we ask questions like, what's on your mind? Um, What inspires you at the moment? Questions that really bring out something where then if you tell me I'm so inspired at the moment by how culture unfolds in XYZ systems, I'm like, oh my God, yes, hey, look, my brother just started working on this. And so it's really the way we ask questions more open-endedly and and so on, the way we respond with setting hooks and other things. I think then there's a lot of kind of things around community building, you know, how we develop rituals and so on. But I think on the individual level, it's so much about how we frame conversation, how we allow the other to really kind of prosper in the conversation rather than just kind of imbuing something on them and, and putting them into two box.
0: And you know, so much of these interactions like I, I think about my life journey and you know, different from yours but a lot of similarities, a, a lot of international travel, a lot of moving from place to place. Not always nomadic in the purest sense of that word, but there's a general openness for exploration. And I'm curious we're we're not living in that world right now. And don't know when we'll return to sort of the, the, what I would consider fairly normal movement, even within New York. Like I haven't been, I'm in Brooklyn. I haven't been in Manhattan since March. Right. And, and that's unheard of for me to be in New York and not have touched Manhattan in four months, five months or, or however long it's been. So our world's from a physical perspective, are shrinking to some extent. So I'm, I'm curious how you see the serendipity mindset adjusting for this new kind of smaller physical reality, while I concede that we are, like, we're doing this interview online right now, right? So we do have tremendous technological capability, but I think it's safe to say that this is somewhat different <laughs> than than interacting in the in the physical world so i'm i'm curious where serendipity is going to play a role in this new mindset or new reality that we're kind of all navigating
1: yeah well it's it's, it's interesting i mean you know being in manhattan at the moment i haven't been exactly in brooklyn for a very long time it's exactly and to your point that, you know, as someone who thrives on serendipity, I felt part of it certainly was cut down, right? In terms of how uh, all these, un- like I'm working from home the whole day, so all these unexpected coffee shop moments or conference moments where you just bump into people and stuff like that, it just doesn't happen to that degree. It did happen. Um, at the same time, one of the things I've been really fascinated by is both the question of how do we almost replicate those kind of things we would do offline, online. So how can I still ask you these kind of questions? How can I, you know, how can we essentially take all the kind of best practices we have from offline, online in some way, but then also... What are the things, of course, that we cannot easily replicate, right? I think the energy between us is really cool. It would be even better if we would be in the same room and like vibe on each other and really kind of develop that like thing. And and, and again, I think there's so much around these kind of things that, that are just about being in the same room. But then at the same time, we talked about earlier, right? How you, you mentioned you did a lot of kind of your corporate engagements. Now you can be in, in one country in Europe and then you can be in a country in, you know in, in Asia, like within the same day and you can just scale everything up. And I think the same is is with serendipity. Like there's a lot of kind of potentiality in small things, right? Like as a company, for example, um, companies would do things like just like serendipity pairings, right? Where you would say, okay, like you're sitting at home, you have your routines at the moment and most people feel like a bit disconnected from the overall company or, you know, you go through the same motions. So they hook them up uh, randomly with someone else from in the company and just say, hey, here's two prompts. Just ask them what they're excited about at the moment. And then you know, just have have a random coffee together for half an hour, talk about some things you're excited about. And by doing this, like a lot of times you kind of have people interacting with completely random people and completely kind of interesting new things, perspectives coming out of it. And so there's a lot of these kind of small things where you can recreate the bumping into someone without over-engineering it because you're still kind of, you keep that randomness of like, you have no idea what kind of outcome would come from that conversation, but you know that because the questions are relatively inspiring and the people work in the same company, there will be something in there that could happen. And so I think there's there's a lot of these kind of things that we can now do at scale much easier because we have that. I mean, even at conferences, right? Like some conferences have started doing like um, speed communication things where like, participants will be randomly matched with other participants for two minutes and you briefly talk about an inspiring question and and again if you like that conversation you just continue it same with like dating and other things so I think there's a lot of things we can we can still do that that are really you know serendipity enhancing but but to your point I think especially that energy aspect and that kind of aspect around the deeper joy that comes from like that moment that spark of unexpected is a bit different right when you're with a person in the same room versus like when you're when you're online
0: Yeah, deeper joys, man. That's definitely what we're what we're missing. There's a point in the book where you talk about counterfactuals, and it reminded me of decently mediocre Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Sliding Doors. (laughs) This idea of like, I I say that because I've only seen the movie once, and I remember it was okay, but I also don't remember much about it. But except the central theme of the movie, right, where doors slide and she can now have a different alternative to the life that she was living. So, you know, I wanted to ask you about that idea, this looking at other alternatives as we go through our day-to-day and how that affects the way we think about serendipity.
1: Yeah, well, that's actually something. So one of the things that I got really excited about is developing like a, almost like a serendipity muscle exercise where you ask yourself questions such as, how do I act if I spill a coffee over someone or if I have a conference call and someone asks a question, how do I react to this? Or just something that, how do I react to the unexpected or how do I create the unexpected? And by doing that by being more conscious of it and maybe doing something like a serendipity journal or something that, that brings it to the top of our minds, a lot of times what happens is we become much more aware of every situation and our agency in that situation, right? Like, In every situation, then in every conversation, in every interaction in general, there's always this kind of agency we have of asking something differently, doing something differently that can lead us to some kind of degree of something happening differently from what it could be, right? To your point, like the most obvious example in the sliding doors is exactly you run to the subway, you miss the subway, and then life unfolds very differently, right? Like if you would have been in the subway, it would have been a completely different life story than if you wouldn't. And a lot of times in real life, I mean, the love story I mentioned earlier, where did I talk to the person or didn't I talk to the person? It's very clear points in that process of serendipity where we can say, had you acted differently, life would have unfolded very differently. And of course, a lot of times we can only make that judgment like, post predators so, so once it happens and then look at it. But also there's like beautiful examples in history where we can look at two different people and then say how does it unfold if two people have the same unexpected thing happening, how do they react differently? And so for example you know when they had pepine, this enzyme and they injected into rabbits and rabbits had like their ears flopped, right? Which was unexpected to two researchers approximately at the same time, but only one of them connected the dots and said, oh, wow, like, hey, this might actually be around bloodstream, right? And it might help the blood kind of circulate better and X, Y, Z. And so that opened up a whole research stream around arthritis development or that medication for arthritis and like led to a lot of kind of scientific, uh, scientific kind of discoveries. But the point here is that both of them had a serendipity trigger happen. Both of them had something unexpected, but only one of them did something with it. And so what we can see here is the two different life histories unfolding very differently based on how they reacted to it. I think that's the cool thing about serendipity. Like when we think about our own life and like how we met like, the big unexpected things in our lives. Maybe we always thought about that was very passive, but if we kind of really try to distill it, we will see it was always about, it was not just about running into the potential co-founder. It was about running into them, discussing something, connecting something, and then going with it. And so it's really that active element, which I think then makes us very, I always found that very helpful, especially in periods like at the moment, because it gives us agency. It gives us a sense of control in a situation where we can't control a lot, because we know that every moment, every encounter potentially could lead to something beautiful and joyful rather than anxiety-enhancing and and negative.
0: That's a really great point to make. I think we're we're really settling in on this idea of intention. And I want to get this one other question in before we move to the last two segments of the show, which is off the dome and the drop. So this question is, is one that sounds like it might be more of a data tech indictment, but I don't, Necessarily mean it to be that way, which is, you know, obviously a lot of organizations, a lot of brands, they're looking to take risk out of their planning, right? We kind of touched on risk very early on. So obviously, Coke wants to know how much bottling they should do for a particular product and when and how to stock shelves. And COVID has definitely interrupted a lot of traditional supply lines and the way we think about stocking things. But the tech example is that I'm thinking about is that basically organizations want us human beings to be more predictive, right? The more the algorithms work toward steering us toward certain things, the better off they are, right? In the sense that if I turn on Netflix and they see seen I've watched several different foreign language series, they're likely to feed me foreign language series, right? And so curious, as our systems, meaning the systems around us, strive to be more predictive, how do we build or maintain, I guess, serendipity in in the face of predictive kind of inputs coming at us? So I'm kind of curious about that, a little broad, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on it, and then we'll jump into Off the Dome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really interesting because it's something I've seen that a lot, um, especially in in kind of the context of management, where we try to manage risk, right, to your point. We try to assign probability to, if I'm a company in Uganda, I try to assess that the risk for a tornado happening is X, Y, Z percent, and then I try to kind of derive from this, you know, how my supply chain looks like and all the different other things. But actually then the beauty of trying to manage uncertainty is very different from that, right, because we have a lot of unknown unknowns. We have a lot of things where it's actually – yeah, we can try to, like in management theory, you would always put it as like variance or like error factor, right? So something that you didn't see coming and then it comes and you're like, boom. And what I've always found fascinating is exactly this, that I think Victor Frankl said it nicely, that like the real freedom is in the kind of like between the unexpected, the stimulus and the response. And a lot of times like that is just something that we can't really plan out. And so I think building a muscle for the unexpected then as an individual means that no matter which system you're in, you can be like in a system, you know, take like the most controlled systems, right? Take like uh, aviation, right? Like if you're a Charlie Sullenberger, who's like trying to navigate the plane, and, you know, like your whole system doesn't work at some point, like that is the moment where you become the hero. The moment where you become the hero is not the moment where you're kind of like, you know, like executing exactly what had to be done. Same with doctors, right? Like a lot of times, so a very close friend of mine who's a doctor, she's like, Christian, if you would know how often I'm winging it, I'm always like pretending we have it all under, we know everything, but actually there's a lot of unexpected findings in how the body reacts and then we have to do something with it. The point here is that it almost goes hand in hand that, yes, in like especially more tightly controlled systems and with well-known problems, we want to like reduce risk in order to be able to to have reliability, to kind of like unfold things. But at the same time, there's always this residual area where at being it just for essentially limiting exposure, where well, we have to have that muzzle. And then on the proactive side, like to your point, like, There's this whole kind of thing around innovation and other things which necessitates that anyways and where it's it's a plus. So I think it goes hand in hand with saying we almost like need a culture that allows us to to be realistic about certain things like risk and everything else. But at the same time, we need to let go of the illusion of control. That just because we have an Excel sheet that tells us about all the risk doesn't mean that we understand that something like COVID or something will not be a 5% risk, but it will be a 90% risk or that like there's completely unexpected stuff happening. And so I think it, it definitely goes hand in hand to, to develop those two. But to your point, I think the mindset shift is really in the idea of getting away from the illusion of control to, yes, we're trying to do what we can to manage stuff, but also um, we know that the unexpected will happen at some point. We need to be ready for it. It's awesome. The book is
0: great. Um, serendipity mindset. Um, I really, really enjoyed it, and highly recommend it to folks that are, you know, trying to wrestle with with some of these issues and reframe the way in which we classically think about luck and serendipity, and and those are not the same. And I think that's one of the important things that's that's highlighted very early on in the book. You know, I, I want to get us to off the dome. Which are just a few quick questions. We're literally the first thing that popped into your mind, um, we go for it. so I'm gonna start with the the first off the dome question is obviously you've've you've lived in many cities around the world um, you've visited many places but you've also lived in many places. If you have to pick one city to spend the rest of your life in what's that city going to be I've stumped you.
1: <laughs> it would probably be a mixture between New York Lisbon and and, and London. We're going to
0: combine them together into one. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like the like the coolest city ever, actually. <laughs> I would want to live in that city too. <laughs> Combining London, Lisbon, and, and New York would be awesome. You're starting your day. We're in a kind of normal non-COVID time, so we can just leave our houses freely. What is the one item you'd never leave
1: your house without? Before COVID, it was the laptop. Um, now it's you know, it's literally the face mask and it's literally the face mask in terms of I always forget it and then I have to run back and pick it up and go out again. But yeah. Okay. Now you've put together a lot of
0: events, a lot of dinners, a lot of things that bring together community. Who are the two people, past or present, that you would want to
1: have at a dinner that you put together? And it could be anybody. I've been extremely inspired by Brene Brown. Brown, she did a lot of work around vulnerability and how we essentially build that into everything we do. And I think there's a lot, to, you know, in her words, a lot of courage in vulnerability. So I think there's a lot to learn from community builders for how we build vulnerability into community. And I've also I'm a big Adam Grant groupie in terms of how he, in a way, like he doesn't directly think about community, but he thinks a lot about how do we essentially builds generosity into different types of structures. And I think there's a lot in this kind of idea of at the end of the day, you know, like giving makes us happier than taking, but we, we we developed our structures the other way around. And so there's so much in realizing at the end of the day, if we set up structures that are about an enlightened self-interest, actually, there's a lot we can do to really propel people forward. So I think those two are the two living ones that I that I really appreciate in their work. And Okay. I want to get an invite to that dinner
0: as well. <laughs> and my final off the dome question is, you know, you can only choose one of these two mediums to interact with for the rest of your life. You can either go with books or you can go with
1: music, one or the other. Which one do you choose? <laughs> I had this really cheesy thing come to mind, like books, um, music to the there's this whole anyways in german it makes sense in english it doesn't make sense but (laughs) but the point is that like in definitely books definitely books and i feel because i i visualize them then and it's almost like as if it was a song right as if it was ear Mm. and as if it was was music in my ear so i'm definitely um a book type person okay so there's a lyrical
0: component to the to the books absolutely absolutely okay fair enough Um, that's awesome. I, I like I like these responses. They were you had to think about a couple of them, which is good. But you but you were not. They didn't they didn't tie you up too much, which is great. I want to get us to the drop, which is where we both give recommendations to our listeners, something that they can check out. It doesn't have to be one thing, but it can be just one thing, um, that they should
1: check out. and it could be anything. So, what's your drop for our listeners? Definitely Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning in terms of as a book where is beautifully about how we can find meaning in crisis. So I think at the moment, it's a very kind of beautiful book to to really find meaning in tough situations. I talked earlier about, I think the kind of work around community canvas that Fabian and his friends are are doing is is fantastic in terms of community building. And I think Brittany Brown's work around vulnerability is wonderful for all of us who, you know, I guess we all have to somehow overcome imposter syndrome and other kind of things that that we consider maybe a weakness, but actually that might be a strength when we reframe it. And so I think there's a lot in that. So I definitely recommend her work. Then, of course, Adam Grant's work is is uh, definitely
0: awesome. Those are great drops, and I and I love a shout out to Fabian as always. You know, he's a great guy, so he I'm going to give him an extra shout out among all those greats <laughs> that that you listed as well. My drop, I just have one this week, which is I was watching a documentary. I guess it was a few weeks ago, on Laurel Canyon. And for those who might not be familiar, um, Laurel Canyon is, a, is an area in Southern California and it was also a hotbed of music in the late 60s and 70s. So a lot of great musicians kind of came out of this sort of hybrid community that all existed within Laurel Canyon, um, Buffalo Springfield, Crosby, Stills and Nash, the Eagles, the monkeys, tons of, of artists, Jackson Brown, and, and one in particular, also Joni Mitchell. I'm a huge Joni Mitchell fan. And so Laurel Canyon documentary is worth watching, though it's not my drop. My drop is actually Joni Mitchell's album, Court and Spark, which I think is one of her best records among a discography of great records. But that's been one that I've been listening to quite a bit over these past couple of weeks. So it's been top of mind. So I recommend Joni Mitchell, Court and
1: Spark. So that's my drop. So we gave you it guys. Sounds lots like you're, of you're you're more of a songs person than than the books person. It sounds like. No,
0: I'm I'm actually both. As I have books, and libraries everywhere, so I'm sick with both of those things. But that's been actually just a little bit more on my mind. And I think I gave like essays and books like the last few times. So I'm just trying to mix it up a little bit. Now, um, so Christian, this has been great. I'm glad we got a chance to do this. I'm glad you're feeling better. It was, a, it was an awesome conversation. I can't recommend the book enough. And I'm I'm really glad you are able to join me on The Deep Dive.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Phil.
0: Cheers. It's been a pleasure having Christian Bush join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts, and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.